As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. There have been dire winter warnings of a surge in flu deaths as the virus circulates in a population outside lockdown for the first time since the start of the COVID pandemic. NHS chiefs are warning deaths from flu could hit their highest level in 50 years. And there's also further gloom about energy prices in the winter. Off Gem, the regulator says thousands will again see significant rises next spring, amid warnings that Russia may seek to manipulate supply in order to gain political advantage. Now let's get to the subject of today's special programme, protest and how to deal with it. Well, this morning, protesters from Insulate Britain have been blocking a junction of the M25 and a major road in central London. The climate activists said about 40 demonstrators were sitting on the road at the junction of the M25 at Waltham Cross in Hertfordshire and also on the A501 at the Old Street Roundabout. The protest caused long queues of rush hour traffic. And the action is in breach of a court injunction obtained by the government last week. In theory, the protesters could face large fines and jail terms. Well, there's been lots of frustration from people caught up in long traffic queues or having their lives otherwise disrupted, despite pledges by the Home Secretary Priti Patel this week to tighten the law to deal with the situation better. The protesters say their urgent calls will only get attention through disruption and the right to protest is an ancient one that is vital for democracy. Well, let's talk about all this with Dr. Oscar Berglund, who's lecturer in international public and social policy at the University of Bristol and joins us now. Uh, Dr. Berglund, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. Now, you wrote a very interesting uh, piece recently about the nature of protest. So, first of all, what do you see as the difference between, say, a demonstration and a direct action? Uh, so it is uh, the way that it is disruptive, uh, direct action, and that can be directed at a certain force or or say pollution or whatever it is that you're protesting, or it can be this kind of general disruption that uh, that the M25 uh, protests uh, have done. And it is it is that you kind of disrupt business as usual. So that's different from the march from A to B or petitions or other ways to engage in, in protest. And what research has shown recently uh, is that in order to achieve anything, you really have to disrupt something somewhere. Uh, otherwise, you're very unlikely to achieve much at all. Yes, that's, that's the point. How important is is that disruption? And, and, and how far can it go before it starts to uh, alienate people? I think it's important to note that it always alienates people, right? Protest is very, very seldom popular with a majority of the population when it takes place. Then there are obviously... Uh, more or less alienating kinds of protest, but uh, this 
I mean, the the amount of disruption and the amount of, of attention that the M25 protests are able to attract with a very small amount of, of protesters is really kind of disproportionate. If you think, you know, if, if 100 people would get together in a town square, it wouldn't get uh, uh, any any attention at all. Uh, so in, in that sense, uh, you know, yes, they are alienating people, but it's still an, a remarkable amount of people, about 25%, uh, I, I believe, that you, um, you showed that, that actually support the protest themselves, not just the, the message that they are there to deliver. But I suppose people might say, Dr. Berglund, that, that you know, if you see a very big demonstration, I mean, I'm thinking all the way back perhaps to the march uh, to protest against the Iraq war back in, in 2003, what impressed people was the size and the commitment of the people involved, not the inconvenience. Uh, do, does it have to be inconvenient to work? Well, actually, it's funny you mentioned the Iraq war protest because that's so often brought up by activists in the UK as something that was immense and, and attracted such a large number of participants and yet achieved so little. Uh, so it's, it was really the, the, the uh, lack of, of results from the Iraq war protest that pushed a lot of activists in the UK towards this more kind of um, direct action, disruptive uh, line of protest. Is there much evidence of of, of protests um, disruptive or otherwise uh, actually uh, achieving their ends? I don't think we're any closer to getting homes insulated as a result of all these traffic jams. I, 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 you're right, right. You're right in that these traffic jams are not by themselves going to achieve uh, that. Uh, I suppose you have to see them as large of a of a, of a wider movement. I mean, I heard in in the intro to this, and you're doing, you know, we you were talking about. Um, uh, about increasing energy prices. This is obviously a broader political issue that, you know, these protesters uh, fit into somewhere. It, the protests themselves will not achieve that as part of part of, of, of a broader uh, political context. But isn't there another risk in this, Dr. Berglund, which is that, uh, as you know, as you've heard, as we mentioned in the introduction, uh, the government is moving towards potentially tightening the law on this. And actually, it might have a counter effect to what the protesters want, because they might simply be restricted even more in what they can actually do. So this and this is a global trend about restricting uh, protests. And I mean, Priti Patel is perhaps particularly you know authoritarian and illiberal when it comes to to her approach to to protest but it is the the crackdown on protest is is a global one uh, and i was amongst 400 climate academics that, that wrote a letter uh, an open letter calling out this criminalization of, of protest uh, a few months ago uh, and there have you know been many attempts to do so in various u.s states uh, and so on as well uh, so it's not just a British phenomenon, uh, and these attempts to to illegalise various forms of protest is a response to what has been actually a remarkably successful climate movement over the last three four years uh, that have really changed the debate around climate change. And you can see these these uh, efforts to illegalise protest as a response to that success. You've written recently about uh, extinction rebellion. Is it a different form of protest? What's what's special about the the group or the the groups between Insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion? You mean? Yeah. What's what's special about Extinction Rebellion as a, as a movement compared to some of the protests we've seen in the past? In the past, um, 
I mean, they have obviously renewed a focus on civil disobedience that these latest protests of insulate Britain is, is a continuation of. Uh, I think civil disobedience uh, as as a form of protest uh, has been used at times a lot and has is obviously now very much uh, in, in vogue. Uh, and a lot of the drive for that came from, from the observation that, you know, it is much easier to get uh, to get attention the question is you know where do you get do with what you do with that with that attention and i think that's something that extinction rebellion have been then been been you know discussing or working on how where where to go next from there uh, it's now a movement that is a few years old and you know the the kind of they've had suffered from diminishing returns from a lot of the kind of protests that that they've done it was very eye-catching obviously to start with uh, but they've struggled to maintain that that momentum uh, from from then Dr. Bergler, I'd like to ask you about the, the imbalance that, that some people might see in terms of, uh, of saying, yes, you know, protest is important and maybe it has to be done this way, but it seems to be only on certain sorts of causes. Now, for example, people protesting outside abortion clinics, people, anti-vaxxers protesting, uh, for example, outside schools. A lot of people say that's, that can't happen, that must be got rid of because it is actually dangerous in the way it might affect people's health, for example. So, in a way, there's an ideological issue as well uh, at the heart of all this, isn't there? Uh, of course, protest can be done for for you know reactionary causes or for for progressive causes, and and, and that happens. Um, uh, I my research that I has done more of this around uh, around sort of climate uh, things. I think it's different when it's for example abortion protest. If that targets uh, women who are on the way to to have an abortion, I think that that would is a very uncivil uh, kind of disobedience uh, I would say uh, compared to you know if you are targeting just the general public or any specific you know corporate or government actor I think there's a different different meanings to those protests don't you what's your take we're going to talk, we're going to talk more about the policing in the second part of the program but what's your take on on how the police in in this country deal with protests and how, how have they dealt with it in in, in recent years well, that's a that's a very big question. I think that the the growing intolerance towards protest is dangerous. Uh, I think that it will uh, that it's inflammatory. Uh, that it uh, pours uh, you know fuel onto the fire of uh, the societal reasons why these protests are taking place. And you know, the police crime uh, sentencing and court bill, I think, is really dangerous in the way that it that it limits uh, protest obviously the met police have been you know at the center of this and you know the way that they they handled um uh the um uh, so, well obviously their involvement in 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 the Saraverad um uh, case and also uh, the the following vigil was really problematic i think i think the trust for for the police in amongst younger people amongst women has really decreased uh, in this country uh, this in the, in the in the last year uh, and the scene you know i work in bristol and the scenes in in bristol uh, of um, uh, violence uh, and, and police violence in the kill the bill protests uh, as well it really led to uh, diminished trust in in the police as opposed to large groups of the population
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's get back to the subject of today's special programme, Protest and Disruption. Now, the scenes of Insulate Britain protesters gluing themselves to the road, blocking vehicles on the M25, invading Farnborough Airport, all in the past week have led to anger and frustration from those affected. Over the past year, we've had similar scenes in the heart of London as Extinction Rebellion demonstrators caused widespread problems. And they would say that's the point. No one will take any notice of their concerns unless they force themselves into public consciousness by making trouble. On the other hand, people have the right to go about their daily lives. And that's where the police are put into, of course, a very difficult position between freedom and public order. Now, this week, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, announced plans to toughen the rules on protest. But it remains a vexed issue. Well, joining us now is Owen West, ex-Chief Superintendent and former Head of Specialist Operations and a specialist in crowd policing. He's also a Senior Lecturer in Policing at Edge Hill University. Thanks so much for joining us today on Bloomberg Westminster. Uh, How difficult is it for the police to deal with protests like the ones we've been seeing from uh, Extinction Rebellion? It's incredibly difficult for the police at the moment because the police are effectively still working to the framework and the legislation that was given to them following probably the most uh, important development in protest policing that happened in 2009. And listeners might recall that in 2009 in London, there was a G20 summit. And a gentleman at that, at, uh, at that summit, he wasn't involved in the protest, he was a passerby, was uh, injured, pushed to the ground by a police officer and subsequently died. When the brief history lesson uh, for us all this morning is that following that, uh, that incident, quite rightly, was a national outcry. And since 2009, major reforms in protest policing have flowed from that incident and have been given to the police and supported by the courts, by the College of Policing and the whole of the governance structure. So where we are today is the police are still working to the framework and the philosophy that was given to them in 2009. And the philosophy is all about using engagement and dialogue, trying to problem solve, and that the use of force and coercion should be the very last thing that police officers do. And I think where we are today is that as protest tactics have changed and become more strident and become more obstructive, we're seeing a change in the public mood and a change in the support of the public. And therefore, there is an an expectation on behalf of the public and certainly on behalf of politicians that the police, if you like, take a uh, get-stuff approach and, and start to arrest more readily and use police force more readily. And, of course, that's a difficult balance for the police because they are still where they were told to be by the law in 2009. 
Well, exactly. That was my point, and I was going to come on to. Some people, uh, and you've probably seen it in the papers, have said, no, no, the police have been far too soft. I mean, there was famously the Extinction Rebellion uh, protest in the middle of Oxford Circus. was there for uh, days and days, it seemed, completely disrupting everything. A lot of people feel that even with the Insulate Britain protests we've seen in the uh, recent months, the same thing. Far too soft. If you were a serving policeman now, would you have handled this in the same way? I think I would have done because the you know the, the eye on the prize here is actually about police legitimacy and public support for the police. And very very often we've seen negative headlines where police have been too robust, too interventionist, and too early uh, in in the cycle of the event. So I, I think back to the Colston statue, and, and listeners will recall uh, what happened in Bristol. I think that was the right call uh, to uh, not to intervene at that on that particular occasion because. There was, firstly, there weren't sufficient officers to be able to deal with that safely. Uh, and secondly, uh, it would have been the right thing to do, in my opinion, not to have created an even bigger escalation, an even bigger problem, because of what would have been perceived by police overhandedness. So I understand the tension. It is incredibly difficult for the police to maintain that balance. But I just remind listeners that the police are working through a legislative framework through a set of rules given to them by the police watchdog, HMIC, by the government, in 2009, and until legislation changes, uh, the police still have to uh, obey and, and, and you know comply with what was said in 2009. And that's particularly important when we get to the courts. We've seen very, very recently that the Supreme Court has held that it is perfectly reasonable, perfectly reasonable excuse for protesters to block the road. We've seen, I think, within the last two or three days, that the HS2 tunnellers have been cleared at court for their. Uh, trespass and their protest activity. So the police and the courts and the law are still where they were in 2009. And I think that's the tension and the balance for the police. And just lastly, the police have always had the power, uh, since the 1986 Public Order Act, they have always had the power where disruption gets too great to make arrests, to use force. Uh, so that, that power has never gone away. I think what we're seeing now is more of a public clamour and more of a political clamour for the police to get to that position quicker than they have done in the past. Just on, on police powers, we've had Priti Patel talking tough this week at the Conservative Party conference. I'm old enough to remember uh, the, the, the the last Conservative government in the 90s talking tough on, on protests and demonstrations. Uh, do, do the police not have enough powers? It seems that they're always being offered more powers or, or politicians are always talking about more powers. Well, I think the issue here is that that was a conference headline looking for an application. That There is absolutely no shortage of powers for the police. The preventative order that Priti Patel talked about isn't new. Preventative orders, criminal preventative orders, have been around for many, many years. You know, football banning orders would be a really good example of that. The difficulty and the danger for the police in terms of police legitimacy and trust and confidence is that the threshold for triggering those can be quite low. So you don't need to have somebody convicted in court to be able to apply the order to them, you effectively need a, a reasonably low threshold of intelligence or reasonable suspicion on behalf of the police. And it's really important, therefore, that if the police are going to use those powers, that they absolutely get it right and spend a great deal of time making sure that they are not disproportionately exercising those powers. But as I've said before, the police have powers to limit protests, to limit the numbers of, numbers of protests, to decide where and where protests can and can't happen. So there is no shortage whatsoever of police powers. Uh, and I think that the politicians offering to give more just belies the fact that uh, it's always been there. The framework and the philosophy, which, is, which has the, the Human Rights Act in terms of freedom of expression and freedom of, freedom of, of, of assembly, 
that's where, where all of this issue stems from. The centrality of those two points is enshrined in the operational guidance given to police officers since 2009. And I think what politicians are, well, more than hinting at, we've seen it from the Conservatives in the conference this week, more than hinting at the fact that they now want to dismantle elements of the Human Rights Act. Let me ask you then, Owen, I mean, some would say what you have to recognise is that protest has changed, that these, these protests are a different kind. They're literally setting out to cause trouble because they want to gain attention for obvious reasons, and that that needs to be recognised. It's not just a bunch of people marching down the road anymore. I absolutely agree, and I, and I think the, the issue for Extinction Rebellion and for uh, Insulate Britain is that they are at risk of losing public support for their cause, and therefore that public support is swinging towards more robust actions on behalf of the police. That said, even with a changing tactical approach from protesters, I would still maintain that there are more than adequate powers for the police to use, more than adequate powers in terms of, of uh, arrests, of imposing conditions, of banning public processions. The Police Crime Courts and Sentencing Bill proposes an ability actually to ban the public assembly, which is entirely new for the UK. That, that's, we've never seen that before. And so I, I think there's a real risk now of the changing tactics of protesters uh, effectively moving us towards a, a much more robust approach. I think we'll see legislation change. And I think that will be very difficult for the police because in all I've seen coming out of government in terms of what they want to do, whether it's the criminal, uh, criminal preventative order or the police crime uh, courts and sentencing bill, all of those measures taken together, Roger and Ewan, will lower the threshold for police use of force at protests. And in my view, that's likely to increase, not decrease, conflict between the police and protesters. Do the police quite often get this wrong i'm i'm, th I'm thinking of the sarah everard protest as, as, as one obvious ex recent example of, of a fairly peaceful protest which was quite heavily uh well I, I've, I've said before uh, i've said before that my view is the met got the sarah everard vigil badly wrong and and this isn't you know speaking in hindsight my view was that that was a, a huge opportunity for the metropolitan police to engage to express their solidarity with women uh, and young girls to uh, express the enormity of what had happened with a, a serving officer committing that, that dreadful, awful offence. And if I'd have been down in the Met in a command position, then I would have frankly taken the arm off, off, off the group, reclaimed the streets, to work with them and to show them that we were uh, doing all we could to be constructive and engage with them. So my view all along, I've said it many times since, uh, in print uh, and on broadcast, was the fact that this was an opportunity for the Met Police. It was not a threat. But I suppose the point with that, and more widely too, was it was during COVID time when there were restrictions and this was what the police were saying about people getting together and all the rest of it. Isn't there a risk really that what happened during the COVID period has kind of increased the police assumption about their powers in a way that's going to be hard to roll back? I'm not so sure it has, to be honest. I, I, I get the issue about it. It was time of a pandemic, but, but my view was actually this was a really critical issue that was critical to legitimacy of, of the police as a whole, particularly the Met Police. Um, I, and I think the, the, the awful sad story of Sarah Everard and, and the handling of it started from that vigil, which had repercussions uh, around the world. I think where police officers are right now, and I speak to them very, very often, as you might imagine, and, and are currently teaching the next generation of aspiring officers, is they feel damned if they do and damned if they don't. They are told uh, to work to a, a philosophy and a framework that, that has the centrality of the Human Rights Act within it. The courts still uphold that. 
the, uh, the, the, the governance structures for the police still uh, uphold that, but yet the political narrative and the public narrative is elsewhere. And until legislation changes, the police will still have to comply with the law, and the law is absolutely based on the centrality of human rights. Well, just briefly, how should the operational guidance change to make this make policing better, just, just briefly? I'm not so sure it should. Uh, the, the operational guidance that came out after 2009 was universally welcomed by human rights lawyers, by the criminal justice community, by protest groups themselves, because what it did was it, 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 it distilled all of the known science about crowd psychology and crowd behaviour, and it still stands good in my view. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.